Hello, everybody, and welcome to Bad Gaze, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. My name is Ben Miller. I'm a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. And my name is Hugh Lemmy. I'm a, a writer and author. And uh, last week, we talked about Franco Zeffirelli, an opera director who summed up all of the negative aspects of that wonderful term, opera queen. Who's this week's episode about, Hugh? Well, I'm going to paint you a picture, okay? Imagine the scene, Ben. It's February the 13th, 2022. You've taken time off from your busy opera-going schedule to travel to Inglewood, California, and to attend the event of the season, the NFL Super Bowl. You have your beer hat on, and you're wearing the jersey of your favorite team, the Cincinnati Bengals. The stadium is packed, the atmosphere of excitement and expectation palpable. And over the loudspeaker, a beat starts. Dum, dum, ch, dum, dum, ch, dum, dum, ch. And that is all the crowd needs. Before you know it, the entire stadium is stamping their feet and clapping their hands in time to the beat. Everyone, absolutely everyone knows the lyrics. And then the impossible happens. Against the odds, the Bengals romp home to victory against their opponents, the Los Angeles Rams. And you can't believe it. You're on your feet amongst a crowd of Bengals fans. Tears are filling your eyes. This might be the greatest moment of your life. And then across the loudspeakers, the same voice begins again to call out, this time singing a, a soft lyrical refrain. I've paid my dues time after time. I've done my sentence, but committed no crime. And bad mistakes, I've made a few. I've had my share of sand kicked in my face, but I've come through. And before you know it, your arms are wrapped around the shoulders of your fellow sports fans. Spilled beer trickles down the aisles of the seating. And in one harmonious voice, you're all singing. We are the champions, my friends. We are the champions. No time for losers, for we are the champions of the world. So we all know these songs. But if we stop for a moment, we must notice a certain incongruity going on here. These stadium-filling chants are a sort of anthem for a type of foot-stomping machismo, uh, a, 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 dare I say it, heterosexual triumphalism. Yet they're all singing a 45-year-old pop song written by a man who is almost an avatar of a certain type of homosexuality that existed when queer men specifically were the subjects of terror and disgust by the heterosexual mainstream. And he was an avatar specifically of that fear itself. And if you watch the official video of We Are The Champions... We see this performer in the late 1970s, dressed in an extremely figure-hugging Harlequin's leotard, so tight that you can see which way he's dressed, with a, a scooped neck cut down to his navel, revealing his nipples, and with a silver necklace nestled in his chest hair. This just skims the surface of the contradictions and ambivalences in life and work of today's subject, Freddie Mercury. Oh, fabulous. I'm looking forward to this. And actually, you mentioned um, taking time out of my busy opera going schedule to to go attend this uh, sporting event, uh, which you discussed in such vivid detail. Um, and uh, I could also appreciate Freddie Murphy on his wonderful duets album, Barcelona, with the, the great Catalan soprano Montserrat Caballé. Uh, Montserrat Caballé, sorry. Yeah, well, more on that later. Yeah, But yes, he was a fellow opera queen. Oh, in fact, the, the legacy of, of Mercury, Mercury and his, his music often seems to, to smooth his work and that of his band Queen into a sort of middle-aged Kiss FM everyday normality. Um, and so it's strange to think that at the height of, height of their fame, one of the biggest performers on the world stage was um, at times a sort of cookie-cutter Castro clone with a handlebar moustache who, who doted on his thoroughbred, long-haired, blue-point Siamese and his, his rescue cats who had names like Tiffany, Delilah, and Goliath. 
And at other times was this biker clap, uh, cap clad leather daddy who wore t-shirts for New York's underground fisting clubs in his official music videos, even in the 1970s. So while Freddie Mercury became such an icon that he's now almost a, a, a punchline or a fancy dress outfit or something, his, his life, his work, and his public persona embody many of the contradictions and nuances of queer life in the 70s and 80s in a way that might not be immediately obvious. And while you might not like the music, and as a disclaimer, music will not be the focus of this podcast, but instead his life, um, but you might not like the music, but there, there can be few people who deny that he was a performer of astonishing charisma. Um, yet he was also somebody wracked with self-doubt. So all this can be understood better when we look at, at Freddie's life. Freddie Mercury was born in 1946 in Stonetown, the main town of Zanzibar, which is a small archipelago in the Indian Ocean, uh, just off the coast of Africa. Today it is an autonomous region of Tanzania, but at the time when Freddie was born, it was a sultanate and a British protectorate. The rulers of the sultanate were from an Arab dynasty, while most of the population were black African. The archipelago had a long history as a prosperous trading colony, and so there was a large minority of South South Asian population too, um, who constituted a sort of middle class of colonial administrators and traders. Freddie Mercury's family was part of that minority. His father, Bomi Bulsara, had moved to Zanzibar from India to work as a cashier for the British, and then returned briefly to Bombay, where, oh, as it was then, Mumbai now, where he married Jur, who was Freddie's mother and they returned to live in Zanzibar. As minor civil servants, they were still able to afford quite a high-quality lifestyle there, um, employing servants and so on. And his family were Parsis, uh, an ethno-religious group from the Indian subcontinent who were largely followers of the Zoroastrian faith, one of the world's oldest religions that's thought to have emerged in what is present-day Iran, um, around the second millennium BCE. Freddie's parents named him Farok, and they were thrilled with their newborn son. So, as was common in the British Empire, um, young Farrakh was sent back to his mother country, in this case, India, to be educated at boarding school when he was just eight years old. He attended one of the country's most prestigious private boys' schools, uh, St. Peter's, which is located between Mumbai and Goa. And even at this young age, in the mid-1950s, he was already obsessed with Western pop music and rock and roll. His uh, flatmate, his classmate, sorry, called him Freddie which he liked, and so he adopted that as his name. And understandably, for an eight-year-old being sent away to boarding school, he didn't find school very easy at first. He missed his family. But he was he was quite a good um, award-winning student, in fact. Um, he enjoyed performing, but he was also quite self-conscious, and he was subject to bullying. Later, he would remember of boarding school, quote, all the things they say about them are more or less true, all the bullying and everything else. I've had the odd schoolmaster chasing me. He was, as the old saying goes, different to the other boys, although perhaps not that different. A former schoolmistress recalls he developed a habit of calling everybody darling, while his old maths teacher uh, recalled that he he had some sort of boyfriend even when he was at school, and uh, that his father was informed about this. In Freddie's own words, at school, I was considered the arch puff. What a wonderful origin story, the arch puff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we we all know them, and some of us wear them. So here we here we sort of encounter one of the contradictions that seem to litter his life. Um, Freddie Mercury was at heart a very shy and self conscious boy, 
Uh, he was nicknamed Bucky on account of his very prominent overbite. He actually had four extra teeth in the back of his mouth, and he became very self-conscious about them. Um, he developed this habit of pulling his lips over his teeth to conceal them when he realized that he was sort of smiling and talking, and, and he had that habit his entire life. Even towards the end of his life, when you see videos, he has this sort of habit. Um, but he refused to get the, his teeth, quote-unquote, fixed because um, he actually thought that's what gave him his vocal range. And he always loved music and performing. And when he was 12, he joined with a few of his classmates to form his first band, The Hectics, with himself on the piano. Music began to take over his life. And so in 1963, aged 16, he actually failed his exams at St. Peter's. And as a result, he returned to his family in Zanzibar. In Zanzibar, however, life was changing very fast. The cost of the Second World War had really spelt the end for the end, uh, spelt the end for the British Empire. And so by the end of the 1960s, decolonization was occurring across Africa as African countries fought for independence. In 1961, the neighboring state of uh, Tanganyika won independence from colonial British rule. And in December of 1963, Zanzibar followed suit. However, while Tanganyika went from being a British-ruled colonial territory to a, re a republic, Zanzibar went from being a British protectorate with a sultan to a constitutional monarchy with a sultan. And this state of affairs lasted for about a month before a revolution led by African nationalists swept the sultan out of power. This revolution aimed to overturn the Arab control of the island, and it unleashed a wave of violence that also targeted the South Asians who were seen as complicit in the functioning of the old regime. In May of 1964, the family left, and being British subjects, they were at that time eligible for residency in the UK. They moved to the small commuter suburb of Feltham, which is southwest of London, uh, which is, dare I say it, not the most exciting place in the world, and uh, a far cry from Zanzibar. So while his parents wanted him to become a lawyer, he instead wanted to go to art school. So he did his art foundation course at Isleworth Poly. And then he studied first fashion and then graphic arts at Ealing Art College. Uh, I think this probably shows still more of an interest in pop stardom than as a career as a graphic designer, because art school at those days was seen as a standard route into the music industry. Peter, uh, Pete Townsend from The Who and Ronnie Wood from The Rolling Stones had both also studied at Ealing Art College. So Freddie Bulsara had taken up the London look of the 60s and was dressing in bohemian clothes and... Friends from the time remembered him as someone who didn't really drink or party too much. Um, he worked various odd jobs, including as a baggage handler at Heathrow Airport, which is right next to Felton. He was still finding his feet in a culture which he admired, but which was deeply riven with racism against immigrants, um, and especially Asian people at the time. Um, and so he wasn't always obviously comfortable or he didn't find it easy to make friends in that environment, um, given the racism that was so pervasive in British society and so explicit in British society. But he did, um, he did enjoy going to gigs, and he actually went to see Jimi Hendrix perform 14 times while he was in the UK. He was also starting to make some friends, um, including one friend called Tim Staffel. Um, at school, Staffel had been in a band called 1984, and the guitar guitarist in the band was another student called Brian May. So while Staffel had gone to art school with Freddie, May had gone to Imperial College to get his um, BSc in physics, and he was preparing to do his PhD in astrophysics. So Staffel and May decided to form a new band, which they called Smile, and they recruited a young dental student called Roger Taylor to play on the drums. And Freddie became um, a, a big fan of his friend Tim's new band. He was almost like a groupie. He sort of hung out with them a lot. He gave him a lot of 
I suppose, unsolicited advice about how to improve their show and stuff. But the, no invitation was really given for him to join. So he ended up joining a Liverpool-based band called Ibex. He managed to persuade them to change their name to Wreckage, which is a much better name for a band. Uh, sounds like a hardcore band. His nickname in the band was the Old Queen due to his mannerisms and his already flamboyant dress sense. And he complained that other members of the band had been spreading rumours he was, quote unquote, a fully fledged queer. Um, despite the fact he had a girlfriend, Rosemary, who he knew from college. Rosemary was friends with a, a circle of gay artists in London at the time, including Derek Jarman and David Hockney. And Freddie was pestering her to invite him to their dinner parties. She said, quote, I felt if he ever met these people, then that would be it. They would take him from me and it wouldn't, and I would be shut out. Yeah, this is that, that very special kind of heterosexuality where all you want is for your girlfriend to introduce you to Derek Jarman. You know, it's, <laughs> there are many such cases. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, um, I feel like Rosemary had his number. Um, but he, he, didn't really, he didn't really take that hint. He started to express more and more interest in sort of pursuing gay relationships. Um, gay sex so they they split up and the band ibex now wreckage also didn't last so he joined another band called sour milk sea um but but neither sour milk sea nor nor smile his friends bands were were really working out and so um in early 1970 freddie's band disbanded and smile's lead singer tim quit the band Freddie was just 23 still, and he was the obvious replacement. He'd been running a clothes stand on Kensington Market with Roger already, and he was invested in the success of the band, obviously. So so he joined, and um, Freddie's powerful personality and creative vision began to transform the band almost immediately. He adopted the new surname Mercury, and he renamed the band Queen. That was not a, a universally popular decision with the rest of the band, but he, he assured them. It's wonderful, dear. People will love it. He would later say, it's very regal, obviously, and it sounds splendid. It's a strong name, very universal and immediate. I was certainly aware of the gay connotations, but that was just one facet of it. Really, Queen? (laughs) Really, Queen. So the following year, they were joined by a new bassist um, after a few few, uh, temporary bassists. They were joined by a new bassist, John Deacon, and so the lineup was complete. The band managed to negotiate some studio time to record five demos um, in return for testing the studio's equipment in a new this new studio. And then they were able to secure a management deal, which allowed them to use the state-of-the-art Trident studios to record their first album, even though they didn't yet actually have a record deal. This set them up, um, this sort of setup with the, the management meant that they had to record in off-peak hours, which is literally between, I think, like 2 or 3 a.m. and 7 a.m. But it did give them access to the very latest sort of production equipment and producers. So from, from almost the very start, these high production values and this experimental design became one of the band's hallmarks. Um, some people say overproduced. After working on promoting the album, they secured a deal with EMI to release it. And so it came out in July of 1973. It was called Queen, but it it failed to smash through into the public consciousness. And it peaked in the chart uh, at number 24 only the following year um, after their second album was released. But by the following month, they were already back in the studio recording their follow-up, that follow-up, Queen 2 which performed much better and gave them their first hit single with the song Seven Seas of Rye, which peaked at number 10. So perhaps it's an interesting time now to talk about the the sort of small but significant cultural shift that was happening in Britain at the time. 
despite the reputation of the swinging 60s, England was still a remarkably dreary and heterogeneous place for most people. Although homosexuality had been partially decriminalized in England in 1967, it was far more in the spirit of um, sympathetic disapproval. Even advocates of the law reform implored with homosexuals to take advantage of the change with um, extreme discretion. The Gay Liberation Front had been formed in London in 1970, and although it was starting to make some waves in national discourse through high-profile actions like disrupting Mary Whitehouse's Festival of Light, it was still very much a minoritarian concern. In theatre and film, homosexual subjects had only just started really to, to, be, to begin to be sort of broken through with these productions uh, from the early 60s, like A Taste of Honey or Loot. Yet these were firmly, usually firmly within this sort of kitchen sink realist framework, you know, homosexuality as part of this hard social critique. <clears throat> In music, however, traditional representations of gender and sex were being blown apart. Out of the psychedelic and art rock movements of the late 60s was emerging an even more flamboyant camp vision of the potential of rock named glam, uh, which accentuated the artificial, the manufactured, the, the fun. As part of its rebellion against what came before, it also, in its way, pushed against the boundaries of heterosexuality and masculinity. Um, I do think it's possible to overhype this in terms of its content. Like in terms of gender politics, a lot of this was more influenced by attempts to shock than 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 by being plugged into like a wider liberation politics. Um, uh, it was more sort of the result of maybe of that that. Um, liberation politics rather than, than pushing it ahead. It was a result of that political work. Yeah, that's the way that these things tend to work, isn't it? That like certain elements of liberation politics will sort of blow open the potential for something and then the space gets filled in um, by other by other sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, they're emerging within the same context and are influenced by similar things. But, um, but, but for example, like I think misogyny and sexual abuse and things were still very much at the center of this rock and roll culture. But conversely, I think it's it's actually hard to overemphasize just how shocking and disruptive this gender deviance was for mainstream society. The emergence of performers like um, Mark Boland from T-Rex, uh, Roxy Music, <clears throat> and of course David Bowie were unfathomably weird for much of British society. Um, yet the, the monocultural nature of Britain at the time, ironically, allowed for them to have enormous influence through their appearances on TV. In the 1970s, there were only three TV channels in the UK. Uh, out of a population of 55 million people, about 15 million people would watch Top of the Pops on a Thursday night. So that's what, like, one in one in four. Um, so when, when David Bowie appeared on the show in 1972 in this sort of splendid Rococo cat suit with this big red hair in the role of his new character, Ziggy Stardust, it was already quite a shock to the audience. But when he struck up his new song, Starman, and he sort of looped his arm languidly around the shoulder of this very long-haired, pretty blonde boy, the guitarist Mick Ronson, it really infused the entire performance of his sexual energy, which, which horrified many people and, and seduced millions more. There's a moment in the show where he sings the line, I had to phone someone, so I picked on you, who, who, and he looks straight into the camera and he points at... Um, like, I want to say, like, he points at me, you know, it feels that way. <clears throat> he he has this, um, you know, as the viewer watching it, he has this this charisma, and it's so powerful that you really do think that he picked on you. And this was a sort of energy that was emerging into this still very grim, buttoned-up conservative society of Britain in the early 70s, like the Britain of the 
the three day week later in the decade. If you watch Roxy Music's top of the pop, top of the pop's performance of their song Virginia Plain in the same year, in that context, you can start to imagine how shocking it must have been to see um, Brian Ferry dressed as a, a sort of cross between Liberace and Simone Bolivar with this like sequined, broad-shouldered suit with eyeshadow and this very affected accent, and then the divine Brian Eno dressed in this enormous fur coat playing his synth with glittered gloves. You can sort of see how this type of masculinity is strange and rare. I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on the combination of Liberace and Simone Bolivar. Watch the video and you'll you'll see what I'm saying. Like it's this it's this very sort of strange like it's a very masculine, almost military look, but he also looks kind of fabulous. Actually if you want a really good rep- uh, representation of this this influence of this type of rock and and glam rock in this way, I think the best representation is actually in fiction in um Todd Haynes' wonderful film Velvet Goldmine, which was a favourite of mine as a teenager. Which has um Jonathan Rhys Myers as this sort of like amalgam of Bowie Brian Ferry and Mark Bolan, and then Ewan McGregor as this weird hybrid of like Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. Um, it was yeah a hugely influential for me as a <clears throat> as a teenager. Anyway, one aspect of this cultural phenomenon, which actually the Haynes film really talks about, was the beginnings of a sort of more public discussion about same sex desire. Mark Bolan, the lead singer of T Rex, had made repeated reference to his bisexuality and also to being gay. And David Bowie came out as quote-unquote gay and bisexual in 1972. Bowie is actually a really interesting example, however, because later he he really regretted making this announcement. And he sort of suggested it wasn't really true to him as a as a person. It was more of his part of this androgynous alien rock star performer, uh, persona of, of Ziggy Stardust. But I think there's a few instructive things to think about here. First of all, the conflation of terms, of the terms like gay and bisexual, which to modern listeners will seem very confusing, perhaps, um, that, that those things are seen as the same thing. But in, in early years post-liberation, uh, the term gay was an umbrella term, which would have covered, uh, for many, uh, a whole variety of sexual and gender deviant behaviours. So in the 70s and even into the 80s, many gay, trans, bisexual and queer people would simply have described themselves as gay without the need for further categorization. Uh, in many ways, it, it almost performs a similar function to the way a lot of people use the term queer today in some contexts. And secondly, the other sort of um, instructive thing about this is is that performers like Bowie, who would, who would later describe his identity at that time, he'd later describe himself as a closeted heterosexual. He he purposefully chose to come out precisely because it was risque and prov- provocative. Like it, it wasn't so much um, an attempt to deconstruct the sense of weirdness around gay people by admitting to being gay, but actually it was an attempt to adopt that weirdness as part of their rock persona. It was like, it was by calling yourself gay, you weren't trying to uh, normalize homosexuality. You were trying to freak people out. Um that's not to say that some of these people, for example, Bolin, were almost certainly were bisexual or, or, or gay, but, um, you know, it's, it's just part of a way of thinking about the way it was seen at that time. <clears throat> uh, in a way, it was, it was almost easier, in fact, for, for a straight rock star to explicitly claim a, a sort of gay or queer identity like Bowie or to sort of hint towards that sort of transgression the way that New York Dolls did, precisely because they, they were this, they, they did have this heterosexual, confident, heterosexual rock god persona behind it. I feel like we're in a, a, a very complex and sensitive area here, so I'm trying to tread, tread quite carefully. But 
to some extent, there there isn't actually a firm border of meaning between um, a performer's shtick and a, a real identity, as it were. You know, it's uh, and because because this period is so close to ours, it can be harder to spot how things actually had different meanings and different weights then. Right, and to say that is not to say that someone's identity or what they're experiencing is fake. It's just to say that the like that. I mean, this is the same misunderstanding that I think sometimes people have when they hear this sort of infamous Judith Butler concept, the gender is performative, uh, and they assume that that means that it's like fake, or they think that socially constructed means fake or means that that's like constructed in this very obvious way that's always very easy to apprehend and to do and to undo, when in fact the idea is that these things have ways of um, making themselves be real or becoming real or... um, you know, changing us even as we change them. And so there's a, the, the boundaries are, um, it's a way of thinking. I, th- I think what you're trying to get at uh, for our listeners is a way of thinking about these boundaries and the boundaries of these identities in the most expansive way possible, as opposed to trying to say that something wasn't true because it was performative or because it had an element of performance or because it was related to a performance persona. Yeah, and also that because it's so close to our our life that so many of these people are still alive, that is, it, it can be harder for us to see that difference. That if we're talking about someone in the Victorian era, for example, it can be quite easy to 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 sort of say and explain, you know, like that these performances around gender were not read in the same way that they are today. But actually, this is an ongoing process. It's not, and and the same process was happening in the nineteen seventies. Does that make sense? It does. So the reason I raise this is to emphasize this other contradiction in Freddie's Freddie's life, which was his his reluctance to definitively claim or name his sexual identity, despite having a public persona that flirted so heavily with queer references and and came to define uh, like so many more queer references, precisely because of the age that he grew up, and also because the impetus to name your sexual identity as a public persona in those at those times had a different weight and different consequences to the way it would today. Um, I'm reminded here actually of a response by another very charismatic fave of mine, Juan Gabriel, who would say of his sexuality, lo que se ve no se pregunta, which means uh, what one sees doesn't have to be questioned, which I think is probably a really useful way to think of Freddie Mercury's and something that he would actually sort of, he'd say something similar himself later. Um, he would say, if people ask me if I'm gay, I tell them it's up to them to find out. An important factor in this issue um, in, in talking about Freddie's life is his relationship with a woman called Mary Austin, whom Freddie started dating in 1970. Mary had been on a few dates with Brian May, but there wasn't really a romantic spark. Um, but Brian realized that Freddie seemed interested, so he set them up. Uh, Mary was a 19-year-old who worked at Bieber, the famous London boutique of the 1960s. Um, Brian describes one attraction of going to Bieber as uh, being the beautiful women who work there and, and describes going there to, quote-unquote, look at the scenery, <clears throat> while Freddie described himself as, quote, a Bieber freak right from the beginning. So you can read what you want to in the difference between those statements, between um, Brian May going to look at the scenery and Freddie going because he's a Bieber freak. But anyway, Freddie and Freddie and Mary were soon living together in a, a small flat in Kensington with their cats, 
And there's absolutely no doubt that, that Freddie was deeply in love with Mary. Uh, he would refer to her as his common-law wife and the love of his life for the rest of his life. Mary recounts it taking quite a bit longer for her to feel the same about him and, and, and sensing there was something wrong and feeling quite reticent about declaring her love for him. But he, she, she did, in the end, fall in love with him. And so for the first half of the 70s, Freddie seemed in public, sort of quite happily besotted with, with Austin. Year on year, the band were putting out more and more popular albums. Um, Sheer Heart Attack came out in 1974, A Night at the Opera in 1975, and The Day at the Races in 1976. And they were developing a wide fan base of hard rock fans and pleasing them with this heavily produced albums and over-the-top rock opera stage shows. Yet with this success came the, the opportunity to tour and the access to temptation that has been the ruin of many a poor boy. And God, Freddie was one. In 1975, on tour in the US, Freddie began to frequent the underground gay scenes in the cities they were visiting. And in Ohio, he was actually interrupted by a a journalist who arrived early to an interview who found him, in the words of his biographers, Matt Richards and Mark Langthorne, quote, reclining on a pile of cushions, being weighted on hand and foot by three scantily clad and muscular young hunks. It sounds like my ideal Wednesday afternoon. I was (laughs) was going to say, I... I, I'm ho- I always hope for the same treatment after I do my own book readings at Waterstones, but it is yet to happen. I was going to say for the for the for our upcoming book tour, I think we have to have a conversation with the publishers about this. <laughs> we'll stick on the rider. So uh, the same year, the band finally signed uh, a manager, John Reed, who was also um, he's also the manager. He was also the manager of the, the then openly heterosexual Elton John. Um, and, Fred, and we all know how long that lasted <laughs> yeah he's actually one of the main characters in the biopic of um, Elton John uh, Rocket Man and Freddie actually confided in Reed at this time before he signed him as a, as a manager that he was he was also gay Reed recalled how on tour Freddie this, adopted this very familiar routine of, of dining with the band after the show and then slipping away into the night to go to gay clubs and around this time in the mid-70s, Freddie began this ongoing affair with a music executive called David Minns. Just a quick question before we get into this affair with Minns. Did these Freddie's bandmates realize that he was sneaking off to go to these gay clubs? Was this ever a subject of conversation between them? No, it's fascinating, actually, when you read these biographies, is how long it took for them to figure out what what was really staring at them in plain sight. You know, like they, they mentioned that, that like, at some point they noticed that um, the girls stopped coming to Freddie's room and it started to become boys and stuff, but that <clears throat> it just didn't really twig with them. But I guess that's also quite, an, which seems ridiculous to us, you know, like you've got Freddie Mercury there and he's like sneaking off in the middle of the night and coming back with, and there's like some boy in a, uh, you know, in a um, hot pants around. But I think it's actually quite instructive about the assumption of heterosexuality that was so strong Um especially back then that like, unless someone explicitly walked up and slaps you in the face and tells you I'm a homosexual who likes getting fucked in the ass, people just really assumed that everyone was straight. So that brings, uh, that brings up a question that uh, many of our listeners may be wondering um, about, which is given what we've just heard uh, this sort of life partnership, love of my life relationship with, with this woman um, and then going to these gay clubs um why are we talking about Freddie Mercury on a podcast called Bad Gays and not on a podcast called Bad Buys? I mean, we have talked about bisexual people on the show before, um, and 
it's not that that's like totally outside of our remit, but I guess I'm just wondering, do you primarily think of Freddie Mercury as someone who was a gay man coming to terms with being a gay man or um, a bisexual man who was coming to terms with being a bisexual man? Because both of those are, are things that are real and that you can be. And I'm wondering how you understand Mercury after your research for this episode. Yeah, well, this is a, this is an interesting and, and controversial question. Um, yeah, like you said, like the, the, the show, our show is called Bad Gays as sort of a provocation because actually a lot of the people we feature probably fit within this sort of perhaps earlier 1970s idea of gay, which is <clears throat> gender and sexual deviance from heterosexual cisgender society. Um, so I'm going to, I'm basically going to lay out my, my thoughts my work i'll show you my workings and i can totally accept that other people have very different readings for this and i i also understand that for some bisexual people his role as a bisexual icon is like very meaningful and important so 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 really it depends is is someone's sexuality immutable or can people's sexuality change you know um at what point do you define them so at this point in his life i think it or if you take his life in general, perhaps it's fair to say, no, at this point in his life, bisexuality is perhaps a good way to describe him. You know, he's had girlfriends. He seems to be very much in love with this woman. He has very romantic feelings towards her. Um, so, so I, und- like, so that's one reading. Then there's another reading, which is the one that his bisexuality is perhaps a result of compulsory heterosexuality. And for me, it's a significant, like it's a meaningful difference to say that, Conscious bisexuality, desire towards uh, towards all genders and acting upon that desire, is is a meaningful identity that is different to feeling forced into adopting heterosexual lifestyle and then coming to terms with the fact that, that actually you 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 you're gay and then and therefore changing and coming out. So within that context, I have to say that like. After he breaks up with Mary, which we'll get to very shortly, um, he doesn't really seem to have any sexual relationships with women again in his life. There is one woman in the late 1980s who he spends a lot of time with and has a sort of like strange flirtatious relationship who's this like very sort of buxom Austrian act- older, older woman and actress called Barbara Valentine. Um, <clears throat> but there's also a lot of suggestion that that's sort of like a performance as well. Um, so I'll just say that, but for me, what's quite meaningful and should be accentuated is the, is the degree to which Freddie Mercury, after breaking up with Mary Austin, very, very self-consciously adopted, not just fucking men, which he did. He clearly had sex with hundreds and hundreds of men, but also very clearly adopted, like became part of a homosexual subculture in terms of sex in terms of sex clubs and stuff, but also in terms of music, in terms of dress that like he, he really adopted the gay male fashions of the time. So I guess it's like saying like, like, so I do respect people's beliefs if they say that they think that he, that they, they think he would identify as bisexual. But for me, it's kind of similar to saying, do we think of Elton John as a bisexual man? You know, he was married and he was married much later than Freddie Mercury was, was in this relationship with Mary Austin, et cetera, et cetera. But as society changed and, and it came more acceptable for him to come out, it became very clear that, that, that he's a gay man who was forced into certain behaviors as a result of, um, as a, as a result of 
compulsory compulsory heterosexuality and the same probably you'd say about um about uh george michael and if god forbid either of those other two performers had passed away much earlier in their life as freddie did would we would we how do we think about them right because there's not the we we didn't we didn't ever get Freddie Mercury in a relationship with an a sort of light, like longer life relationship with a man. Uh, we didn't get a, as far as I'm aware, unless you're going to tell us otherwise, any uh, self declaration of identity from Mercury either way. And so we have to, or did we? Well, he, he was, it's a complicated thing. Like uh, there were interviews, like he flirted with it. He did, he did talk, about having had gay sex when he was younger, for example, when he was at school, he did. He once once asked whether he was gay in an interview, and he said, "My darling, I'm gay as a daffodil." But it's not quite the same in those in that context of the early '80s as a sort of like camp put down, as um, as somebody now say you know going on a Twitter account and saying, "I'd just like to inform everybody that um, I'm a gay man or whatever." You know, right? And also, even if. He, I mean, I, I presume that he certainly meant something by that. I mean, it wasn't just a joke, but gay as a daffodil might have included something resembling contemporary bisexuality, just as at that point it might have included something resembling different contemporary forms of gender deviance. Right, yeah. And and also at the same time, it's also probably worth, as I said before, that like to me it seems significant that he so clearly adopted a gay male public persona in his general private life, in his cultural life but at the same time i'm sure there were um, many of those men were living uh, actively bisexual lives at the same time and right i mean it is is bisexual an identity or a description right it exactly. might be a good description of mercury but it might not have been how he identified at his death is that exactly. maybe where you're is that maybe where you're at yeah yeah, I mean, it's it's very complicated, and there's no cut and dry ish, isn't there? There's no cut and dry answer, and as with most things in this show, like the importance is is I think, or the the value is in discussing these different ideas rather than being able to name his sexuality, which seems right. beside beside the point. So that's the basic assumption that you're departing from um, is that this is somebody who, um, it, uh, you know, at the end of his life. Um, at, you know, at the at the end of the day, uh, is a gay man. But you're also saying that you completely understand why people would have a different interpretation of um, how they might think about him, and that might lead them to different conclusions. And that would be another just another way of talking or thinking about it. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. The other thing that's worth pointing out is, I mean, when in 1976, Freddie sort of plucked up the courage to sit down with Mary, and he told her that he thought he might be bisexual. And Mary's response was, I think you're gay. <clears throat> so Mary, who was his best friend and knew him most closely, describes him as a gay man and did, still does. Um, that's a fascinating, him, that's a, that's a really fascinating piece of evidence in terms of how he might have identified. But also I think, and I, I, mean, I don't think you disagree with this at all, um, you know, if someone wants to understand Freddie Mercury as a bisexual icon or as important in how they think about their bisexuality there's nothing wrong with that i mean that doesn't they, they're not they, we don't think that they're doing something wrong or stupid or that they're ignoring the evidence or you know they, they should be yelled at or in any in, you know like none of that at all 
Um, no, no, and I'm not. I'm not in any it's way. It's a legitimate set of ideas. It's a legitimate way of thinking about it, and and we're just operating from a different supposition that we've just explained. Absolutely, and I'm not trying to engage in any way in some sort of, in sort of bisexual erasure. You know, of course, it's possible that you can be exclusively in relationships with 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 one gender or another through for your entire life and still be bisexual. You, you know, bisexuality doesn't necess- necessitate having sex. It's right. a form of, form of desire. The reason I'm, I'm raising it is that there doesn't appear to be much evidence, and his friends and bandmates sort of also concur that there doesn't seem to be much evidence that he did have any desire towards women after he broke up with Mary, who, who, in her words, she, he broke up with her because he was gay. All right. Well, now let's continue with his life story. But I just thought it was important to have that conversation now, so that people, um, so that we, we sort of knew where we where we stood. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the two, the two also did rem- remain firm friends, you know, for the rest of his life. Um, he bought a, a flat, for example, after they broke up, and also she would continue to appear for him, with him for many years um, as quote unquote his girlfriend for public events, which um, <clears throat> she also really enjoyed. So, uh, yeah, he he remained. She remained a, a very important sort of fixture of friendship in his life for the rest of his life. Um. In general, I also try not to really have an opinion on the specific ethics of how people conduct their own sex lives. But I have to say, demanding faithfulness from his partners uh, while not being faithful himself would become an ongoing theme of Freddie's relationships. Um, so, so that he did have this deep love, supposedly, or he did have a deep love for Mary, but that deep love didn't stop him cheating, which I think might be instructive to the same debate. Anyway, in, in 77, the band toured America again, and having broken up with Mary, although not with David, <coughs> um, Freddie really began to let his hair down. And it was this, this was the first time that the band um, actually realised that he was gay as he started to bring more and more boys back to his hotel room. He also met a m- number of men who would be brought into his entourage, uh, one of whom was his new personal assistant, a man called Paul Prenter. Now, Paul Prenter... Is he your, you know personal assistant <laughs> um you know what? I, i'm not sure it is the case actually i think um i think this case he was a personal assistant but i think there was something attractive to him which was the access that paul Prenter gave him to an open gay male identity which um, is also important to remember that this is not a moment i mean it's not like uh, if you're touring in a city um in the 1970s or 80s that you just go on google and look up leather bars you need to know enough people to know when you're going to go sneak off at night where yeah. to go and you, how to get in and who's going to invite you to the private parties and etc cetera, etc cetera. you like so all of that is really like all of that is really um uh secret knowledge in a way uh, and, and yeah. you sort of need to be inducted into it somehow yeah you need a gay fixer if you're new on that scene but poor paul prenter is, is a man who will will sort of go down in in queen fan folklore as the the arch villain of the of the mercury story he's this combination of kind of yoko ono and cardinal Richler, this like evil eminence greece who who wants to destroy the band <clears throat> uh, with this extra slice of course of of homophobia so there'll be more on him and, and that image later but um he also met uh, joe finelli who was this young chef who in very short order he he fell for um, so he had his lawyer, Jim Beach, break up with David Mins on his behalf. Uh, yeah, which is super shitty behavior. And he, he also demanded from Mins a sort of, um, after the fact 
a non-disclosure agreement in the form of a letter that he demanded that, that, that Mins writes. Mins didn't write it, and instead he attempted to actually take his own life. Uh, and, and furious with this, Freddie wrote uh, what is undoubtedly his worst and most mean-spirited song, which was called Don't Try Suicide, Nobody Gives a Damn. Oh, God. Yeah, it's a really, really unpleasant song. Uh, yeah, the, there's no doubt that 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 Freddie had a, a streak of the sort of vituperative acid queen about him. He could be extremely cruel. And this, is, again, is like a contradiction in him because, because he was also – exceedingly generous with with so many of his friends um and lovers and and throughout throughout his life he he desperately sought the affection of men and he longed for this caring meaningful relationship yet his cruelty in matters of love was extremely cold um in 1980 he was he was touring america with queen <clears throat> with their new album the game uh, so it was late august and they'd been on this tour since june so it seems highly unlikely. In fact, it's, it's definitely not not the case that Freddie, who was, you know, Freddie was known to like finish a show, go backstage, do a line of coke, get a blowjob, and then come back on for the encore. So the idea that he was sort of chased for this period is unlikely. But but he did expect that his boyfriend, uh, a guy called Tony Bastin, who was this 28-year-old um, motorbike courier from Brighton, he did expect that he would be faithful. And so when he learned from his associates in London that Tony had been sort of seen out and about on the scene with some pretty young thing in the bars, uh, Freddie called Tony and he said, oh, I wish you could come and visit me on tour. I bought you a transatlantic flight ticket, like airline ticket. He flew him over to Charleston where he was playing. And at the airport, there was a chauffeur waiting for Tony. And the chauffeur immediately picked him up, drove him to the hotel. He went up to Freddie's room, expecting to spend two weeks on tour with Freddie Mercury. Freddie opened the door and immediately dumped him, put him back in a taxi, sent him back to the airport for a flight the same day. Like oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, it's awful, but in a way, I love it. Uh, yeah, oh. it is awful. I mean, just think of the poor oh. guy. Like, he's, he, 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 yeah, his, his boyfriend, who's like this hot rock star, invites him over for two weeks. And then, like, instantly he's back on the flight. Imagine that flight home, like, double jet lag. Oh, my God. Jesus Christ. Well, worse, worse than that, when he got back home, the, uh, the lawyer was there. He was ordered to move out of their shared home, but leave his cat, which, because Freddie had fallen for the cat, for, for this guy's cat. So he's like, I'm dumping you, but I'm keeping your cat. Anyway, back on to... Um, Back onto Queen. So Queen and Freddie had always played with camp, you know, with this frivolity and innuendo in their act. And their early albums are full of these fantasy tropes of, of rock and metal, but with this sort of camp twist. So these fairy kings and ogres and stuff. And all the members of the band wrote songs. Um, in fact, they're the only band in history to have had more than, more than one number one song written by every single member. But Freddie also began to infuse his with these other rich fantasies of sort of early 20th century debauchery too, from music hall to, to Weimar. <clears throat> so like in Killer Queen, he sings, Perfume came naturally from Paris. For cars, she couldn't care less. Fastidious and precise, she's a killer queen. While in Good Old Fashioned Lover Boy, he sang, Dining at the Ritz, we'll meet at nine precisely. I'll pay the bill, you taste the wine. Driving back in my saloon will do quite nicely. Just take me back to yours. That will be fine. Come on and get it. So Freddie was, at the time, highly influenced by this sort of camp, you know, from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which had come out, uh, to that most heterosexual obsessions, the musical Cabaret. 
Uh, ben, last week you you referenced a sentence you said was, I think, the gayest sentence ever spoken on a podcast. Yes, that was, sentence was, then Zeffirelli became Visconti's live-in personal assistant for Italy's first production of a streetcar named Desire. Do we have a challenger? <laughs> I think we have a challenger, yes. Uh, he said, in fact, one of my earliest inspirations came from Cabaret. I absolute, absolutely adore Liza Minnelli. She's a total wow. <laughs> So <laughs> yeah, that might win. <laughs> yeah, which which red blooded male amongst us cannot say that we too adore Liza Minnelli? A total wow. I, I love I love women like Liza Minnelli and Judy Garland. <laughs> so anyway, having broken up with Mary, she is um, she is great in that movie. By the way, just to just to not to now be even gayer and defend Liza Minnelli, but. Um, there's a there's a, the the version of her in cabaret is totally before any of it sort of uh, curdled into uh, into a sort of thing that we think of now um, as Liza as Liza and watching that sort of be invented it's so fresh there as opposed to feeling very rote um, I mean I later Liza is also fabulous in different ways but it's a real I mean cabaret is a really 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 fine interesting film um, that really. Uh, also really influential in um, how music videos are shot. Like it was the first way, the first time that, that music and dance had ever been shot in this way where things were um, foreshortened and you could see ceilings and like, as opposed to shooting a dance number from like 20 feet away and seeing the sort of beautiful bodies of the dancers, um, all of them in frame the whole time. So. Was that gayer than Liza Minnelli's a total well? <laughs> I, I knew it was a mistake to get you started on Liza. Um, no, I'm the same. I also, unironically, absolutely adore Liza Minnelli. She is a total wow. As she once said on the Home Shopping Network, everything sparkled. I thought it was interesting. <laughs> anyway. A motto for life. Having broken up, anyway, having broken up with Mary, he began to spend more and more time in this gay scene, um, especially when he visited New York. And with that, he began to ditch these earlier 70s looks, the the long hair, the Xander Rhodes spandex Harlequin outfits, these capes. And he began to adopt the looks that were, were popular amongst these small subcultures of gay men within the US major cities like New York and San Francisco. He cropped his hair shorter and he grew his famous moustache. And he integrated into these, into these gay male sex cultures where... Um, Unlike in the UK, he could be relatively anonymous, even though they were getting more successful in America. Um, according to his close friend and assistant, Peter Freestone, who he called Phoebe, uh, he, was, he was an avid reader of both the UK and the US editions of the, the Spartacus Gay Guide, a famous sort of guide to clubs and bars. Yeah, <coughs> and that, Peter, that's how you'd find your way around. I mean, with it, was Queen really so uh, not famous in the US at this time that he could go into these clubs and not be noticed? Or is it the kind of thing that was like, uh, was it the kind of thing that was like gay liberation era omerta that like you sort of that the gossip yeah, think, that you saw so and so at the baths didn't make it out of the yeah and I think a lot of them that he went to there were also so many other famous gay men that maybe it wasn't yeah uh, and also of course he was dressed as a clone so you know what's the difference right but um yeah yeah Phoebe Peter Freestone once said <laughs> said about these. These two copies of um, Spartacus Gay Guide, quote, if truth be known, I think these were the only two books he ever read from cover to cover in all the time I knew him. <laughs> anyway, these were um, these were scenes that were very much based on uh, recreational drugs, dancing, disco, house, and of course, lots and lots of kinky sex. 
and he was a visitor to, to leather and kink bars in New York, like um, the Spike, the Saint, the Anvil, the Eagle, <clears throat> and of course, um, the Mineshaft, a, a very famous BDSM leather bar with saint slings and glory holes and dungeons for piss queens and fisters and every other type of bacchanalian limit seeker you can find. The uh, two facts. One, we talked about the Mineshaft briefly last week when we discussed their uh policy of forbidding the discussion of Wagner in the dark room. Um, and then the saint actually had an inbuilt system where they could pump out poppers onto the dance floor, like from Vince. Amazing. So that scene in uh, cruising, the, the William Friedkin film where Al Pacino has this huge handkerchief full of poppers. That he sort of stuffs into his face and goes completely wild on the floor. He wouldn't have even needed to bother there. No, no it just came straight in through the vents. Amazing. Um, But yeah, I mean, uh, the Mineshaft is probably the most famous of these places. um, And and was at the time, uh, it was, it was, if you were a gay man, the place, the the hip place to be, as well as being completely debauched. Um, Visitors included everyone from um, Glenn Hughes, who was the the biker in the village people, to Fassbinder, from uh, Rock Hudson to Michel Foucault. Hopefully all on the same night. <clears throat> Hopefully all in the same cubicle. <laughs> yeah. Talk about discipline and punish. Um, the problem was that, that this camp, the leather, the debauchery were about to kick off a backlash as these things became more recognizable in America as gay tropes. Um, in the US also, the, the nudity and, and raunch that was used to promote uh, the double A side single uh, Fat Bottom Girls and Bicycle Race really offended conservative middle America. Like, ironically, it was their, it was Queen's overt heterosexuality that was starting to get them in trouble. Um, and also, of course, there was this legendary $200,000 launch party for their album Jazz, <clears throat> which was held in a, a hotel in New Orleans, um, which uh, allegedly featured, uh, and excuse some quite problematic imagery here, uh, topless waitresses, drag queens, mud wrestlers, uh, women in bamboo cages, like a model who was served in, an, in, in a huge tray of raw liver, um, little people with trays of cocaine strapped to their heads, uh, and a, a woman who, so, who smoked cigarettes with her vagina. This is like a Stefan bit from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yeah, it, it is one of the sort of most legendary sort of rock and roll parties of of the era, I guess. Um, many of their songs. I mean, it was. Is it like a camp? Do you understand it as like a camp performance of rock heterosexuality? Like we're going to do it all the way up. Yeah, absolutely. And just like the the concept of debauchery, you know, like we yeah we're rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, let's push the limits. So so many of their sort of earlier, more traditional. Uh, rock fans were, were starting to become horrified by the influence that that disco was of the, the influence of disco that was sort of creeping into into their music in the eighties. Obviously, <clears throat> it's a musical form that's associated largely with queer people of color, um, and 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 there was a sort of homophobic backlash occurring in America in the sort of disco sucks movement at the same time. Rolling Stone even described them at the time as the first truly fascist rock band. And they also dropped their famous no synths, no synths claim on their record cover, which con- continued to sort of ostracize their fan base. 
So d- disco was somehow fascist, according to Rolling Stone? No, I think it was more stuff like their um, uh, sort of the idea that they were producing quite banal, stupid stadium rock that was all about spectacle. Yeah. Right. But this this sort of trend of um, yeah towards towards that sort of um, continued throughout the eighties uh, early eighties especially with their album uh, Hot Space which which sort of broke from their rock style completely and also of course the music video for I Want to Break Free which featured the band in drag <clears throat> and this is something that's quite legible as a sort of fun camp to a British heterosexual audience who are raised on pantomime, but it proved far too transgressive for the US market, especially with uh, MTV emerging. Uh, much of the blame for this change of direction was laid inevitably at the door of Paul Prenter, who was, who was sort of act- acting now as Freddie's advisor. The two partied together and did a lot of drugs, and Brian May blamed Prenter for sort of pushing the influence of house and disco over, over Queen's guitar sound. And implicitly amongst some of the fan base, and also in quite a lot of the cultural representations of Queen, Prenter is also disturbingly blamed for Freddie contracting HIV, um, which which probably occurred in the early 80s. Um, personally, I approach the general demonization of Paul Prenter with a pinch of salt. Um, I'm not suggesting that he was necessarily a nice guy who was acting in Freddie's interests, but it does seem very convenient to use him as a scapegoat for fans and, and for a band who, who disliked Freddie's adopting a more gay-focused public persona. Right, and so here comes the evil faggot who stole our Freddie Mercury away from us and somehow turned him. Exactly that. Um, he was lured into the gay, gay world by, by Printer, and if he hadn't been, he'd still be here for us to enjoy as rock fans. Um, and I think, I mean, um, is it not just as likely that sort of Freddie happily adopted this gay scene as a place where he could finally find the self-confidence he'd always struggled with, you know, that a place where he was accepted. Uh, importantly, he, where he was sexually desired, you know, he'd always felt very insecure about himself, how he looked. He was always a, a subject of racism. He suddenly was in a, in a place where he could explore his sexuality and where people um, wanted him for his body and for, rather than for him either as a musical figure or didn't want him at all. And also, given the the sense of freedom and liberation that he clearly found in those clubs that he loved to go to, it would hardly be surprising that if he then wanted to sort of bring some of that culture into influencing his own artwork. So I think this thing is, I think this demonization of Paul Prenter personally is problematic. Just a brief aside to point out that if Freddie Mercury at any point felt insecure about his sexual desirability or sexual viability, then really uh, that should give all of us uh, inspiration <laughs> for the fact that our own, like, we're doing fine. You yeah. know, these, the, this, the, you know, the, everyone struggles with probably this. Everyone struggles with it because, yeah. my God, Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I kind of think too much. Too much of the representation of Freddie Mercury repaints his this time where he he got into clubs and the gay subculture as um, at best a sort of distraction from his quote unquote real work and his real friends and his real fans, and at worst, as in the the biopic Bohemian Rhapsody, as this tragic descent into this underworld where he was sort of corrupted, and for which he'd have to play, pay the ultimate price. <clears throat> it's an extremely moralistic reading, both of obviously homosexuality and um, and especially of the um, the AIDS uh, the AIDS crisis. 
Right. I mean, you, you can't say it uh, often enough because it's still how I think a lot of conventional uh, histories of gay liberation go. Um, AIDS was not a like good thing that helped us grow up. It was not a, an ine the inevitable result of too much anything in the 1970s. Um, it was a disease that had probably been around for dozens of years that happened to find its way into a particular uh, series of, of biological circulations and then led to mass death and was an unmitigated tragedy. But like it was not it was not some like backlash to too much, you know, Every, you, you might understand why someone might feel it that way, but it's really important not to think about it that way retrospectively because then you learn all the wrong lessons from it. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, and, and I think within that context, Parenta is really cast yeah, as, this, as this sort of demonic figure almost in order to remove the burden of thinking about that <clears throat> and also to remove the almost the taint of, if not homosexuality, then at least homosexual deviance from from Mercury himself. Like, I think it's more productive to look at Mercury's embrace of this gay sex culture as actually something that was very personally and, and creatively very liberating for him. Um, and the way that his HIV diagnosis is sometimes portrayed as a kind of punishment, either for neglecting his fans or risking the integrity of the band or... <clears throat> just for indulging his own desire to be part of a queer culture and life is of, of course um, deeply stigmatizing and homophobic, but it is, in my opinion, it is a representation that still does linger in a lot of discussions of, of, um, of his life. Anyway, throughout the early eighties, Queen actually started to falter a, a bit, their success. Um, the mustachioed Freddy with his new look went down really badly in the US, as I mentioned, where where fans threw razor blades on stage during their tour. But the band was still very popular across the world, uh, in the UK, of course, and especially in Japan and in South America, although he still found a way to alienate his fans. In, in Mexico in 1981, he appeared on stage wearing a giant sombrero. <laughs> this added insult to injury because many of the fans were already annoyed that on entering the stadium, they'd had their batteries from their cameras confiscated, only to be sold new ones once they were inside. So they thought they were being taken advantage of. And so in response, some in the crowd um, began throwing their shoes and, and bottles and things at the band. <clears throat> Freddie ended the show shouting, quote, Muchas gracias, Puebla. Mexico, thank you for the shoes. Adios, amigos, motherfuckers. Goodbye, you bunch of tacos. Uh, so this this period of touring in the uh, in the early eighties brings us to actually one of the very disquieting aspects of Queen's legacy. Um, Queen had and, and continues to have a huge following in in Central and South America, <clears throat> and in Hispanophone countries in general. In fact, if you get into a taxi in in Spain, there's about one in three chance there'll be Queen on the radio. Um, and during their rise in the 70s, this sort of fantasy-laden escapist rock had been embraced by many people living under military dictatorship in South America, um, where due to their quite inoffensive and apolitical lyrics, they'd only really been sort of lightly censored for being lewd, but not really banned. So the prospect of a huge tour of South America in 1981, with shows across Argentina, Brazil, Venezuela and Mexico, would obviously have been... Um, very popular and very profitable. Brazil, however, had been a military dictatorship since the mid-1960s, uh, an anti-communist free market regime who uh, that tortured and murdered their political opponents. 
Argentina too was ruled by a military junta known euphemistically as the Proceso de Reorganización Nacional or National Reorganization Process, um, <clears throat> which launched the so-called dirty war against its leftist opponents, um, committing crimes against humanity, uh, torturing, raping and murdering people, stealing their children and so on. And this was part of a transcontinental covert campaign to suppress trade unionism, leftism, political organization, um, political reform through the use of death squads, kidnappings and sort of state terror that was known as Operation Condor, something that you will be shocked to discover was organized, funded and supported by the US government and the CIA. So attracting a major Western band to play was... um, if you'll excuse the expression, a coup for the Yunters. Um, The band wrote off any concerns as as largely irrelevant, justifying that they were doing it for the fans. Bassist John Deacon would later tell Melody Maker, quote, Throughout our career, we've been a very non-political group. We enjoy going to new places. We've toured America and Europe so many times that it's nice to go somewhere different. Basically, we want to play wherever fans want to see us. Yet this... Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's it doesn't work today, and it doesn't really wash down either. Were they uh, caught up in or involved in, or did they have anything to do with the um, uh, South Africa boycotts in the nineteen eighties? Oh, stay tuned. Oh, here we go. Yeah, I mean this this very simplistic reading really ignores the the use the band were put to by the by the regimes. You know, in Argentina, the band were met at the airport by a, a government contingent. Uh, according to Rolling Stone, that the stadium that they played in um, had recently been used to round up dissidents, which they were used for in South in South America. And it shows you how many people the the regimes were rounding up, and the band actually had to to provide their own turf to infill the moat the moat of sort of fetid water that had been used to keep the the prisoners round like rounded up, you know. Um, <clears throat> so it's not like it's something you know. It's, it's, it's they knew it was a present concern. But Freddie would describe their music as, quote, pure escapism. It's like going to see a film. People should just escape for a while, and then they can go back to their problems. That's the way all all songs should be. You listen to them, then discard them like a used tampon. I don't have any messages I'm trying to get across or anything. It's just quite a a way to describe it. Um, But, I mean, and he was invited to tea at the house of um, the General uh, Viola, who was the regime leader at the time, just becoming the regime leader. Um, and he jumped to the chance. And there's a very charming photo of the band, um, minus Roger Taylor, actually, who said he was only there for the fans and not for the politicians. But the rest of the band drinking tea with the leader of the Junta in his own house. Um, and the band certainly opened up the prospect for more rock bands to play South America. Um, they were kind of the first major band to do one of these big South American tours. But perhaps more egregious was indeed their infamous Sun City tour. In 1984, touring their new album, The Works, which put them back in good standing with much of their fan base, they played a series of nine gigs at Sun City, South Africa, breaking the United Nations cultural, academic and sporting boycott of the apartheid regime, which had emerged partly out of an academic boycott that was organised by the anti-apartheid movement. Sun City was located in the Bantustan of... um, Bopu Tatswana, and as such, it, it could offer gambling, um, topless dancing, and other forms of entertainment that was not permitted in the rest of apartheid South Africa. So, as a result, it became 
a popular hotel resort for white South Africans. And the management of Sun City began to offer very lucrative contracts for foreign artists to play, specifically in an attempt to try and break the cultural boycott. And Queen won those bands. And there was this sort of one of the first big supergroup songs was that was that Sun City song by Artists United Against Apartheid, right? Where like with all of these was one of the first times that they did that the, the sort of we are the world thing of getting together, you know, everybody to to sing on this yeah, song I think about was, how they wouldn't about how they wouldn't perform at Sun City. Yeah, I think it was, it was uh, Steve Van Zant from um, uh, the E Street Band, and I think yeah, Spring, Steve Springsteen Zandt, was part of it. Uh, and Bob Dylan is on there. Pat Benatar is on there. Lou Reed is on there. Africa um, Barter is on there. Hollow Notes. So yeah, it was it was a very you know it was a very conscious public issue that actually I think that actually came following this this tour, but it was specifically you know the management were trying to break the boycott, which is why they offered so much money. And and Brian May said, "quote We thought a lot about the morals of it, and it's something we decided to do. The band is not political. We played to anybody who wants to come and listen." and it's true that the gigs weren't segregated and, quote-unquote, anyone could attend. But in apartheid South Africa, where black people suffered huge economic oppression as well, that's a bit like saying, you know, you're free to buy a, f- a Ferrari if you'd like. You know, like, you're not. There were some black people, but in hugely majority white. Uh, and it should also, of course, be pointed out that they were far from the only ones who, who broke the boycott to play at Sun City. Um, also, uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, maybe unsurprisingly, took two million two million dollars for his shows um stevie wonder was offered the same amount but unsurprisingly turned it down i mean who thinks they <laughs> who thought that was going to work as a as an option but i'm afraid to say that the list yeah of the people who bro- broke the boycott is is long um elton john linda ronstad rod stewart uh, and also uh, i'm also yeah afraid to say uh liza dolly and Cher all performed at sun city Back in the UK, as a uh, politically engaged music scene was really emerging in the mid-80s, there was widespread outrage about this, and they were fined by the um, Musicians' Union and blacklisted by the UN. <clears throat> However, they then seemed to make another comeback in the public public eye, most notably by uh, stealing the show at the 1985 Live Aid concert at Wembley Stadium, uh, which seemed, um, against all the odds, really, to suggest that Queen were back and it really helped them to win an entire new cohort of fans. It must have felt very bittersweet for him at that moment. You know, he was at the height of his career performing at Live Aid. He had released his long-desired solo album, Mr. Nice Guy, and he'd even started dating a new guy, this Irish hairdresser who worked at the Savoy Hotel, whom he'd met one night at Heaven. Uh, he had this magnificent Garden Lodge mansion in Kensington, which he'd filled with you know, expensive luxury goods and these antiques that he'd picked up from around the world. And of course, he was surrounded by his cats. Yet being so integrated into the gay community in New York and London, he was also aware of the presence of AIDS. Numerous friends and former lovers had already died. His biographers, um, Richard and Langthorne, they suggest that he might actually have already known that he'd contracted HIV. And there is some cir- circumstantial evidence they suggest that he um, he seroconverted in New York in the, uh, 1982. It's likely that he had tested positive for HIV in 1985, but he seemed to be in some denial about this, um, despite the fact he received 12 positive results in the following two years. Certainly he, certainly he resisted the idea of another US tour because American insurers would have demanded a negative result, which he knew he couldn't provide. Uh, and also, of course, from 1987 until 2010, the US banned people who were living with HIV from traveling to the US. 
But it wasn't until 1987 when he started to develop Kaposi's sarcoma and he had a biopsy and that finally <clears throat> he had the AIDS diagnosis that he had no doubt expected and feared. He told Jim, who the year before had given him a wedding ring, and he said that if he wanted to break up with him, he'd understand. And Jim refused, saying, but I love you. I'm not going to walk out on you now or ever. And he didn't. For the next few years, Freddie retreated into a much more domestic space, supported by Jim, his PA, Peter Freestone, or Phoebe, and his cook and former lover, Joe Finelli, who everyone called Liza. Uh, he was also visited regularly by Mary Austin, and especially as the illness took hold in the last few months of his life by Elton John. He reserved all his energy for his art, and he managed to record two more studio albums of the band after his diagnosis, The Miracle in 1989, and Innuendo in 1991, when he was extremely sick, and of course, the, um, the album you mentioned earlier with Montserrat Gamaye. Uh, the the one of the tracks Barcelona, the most famous one, was intended to be um, the the he, he was intended to sing that at the opening ceremony of the Barcelona Olympics in 1992. But sadly, on the 22nd of November 1991, um, he released a statement confirming that he was HIV positive and had AIDS. And two days later, he died at his Kensington home with his cat Delilah, his friend Dave, and his his partner Jim Hutton by his side. He was 45. After a life of pomp and celebration, his funeral was a remarkably small Zoroastrian service, attended only by his closest friends, the band, and his family. He was cremated wearing the wedding ring that Jim had given him, and Mary received his ashes to be disposed of in a place that only she and Freddie knew. His family, Jim, Joe, and Peter, all received a, a small share of his will, and Mary received his home and the rest of his estate. Thanks so much to all our listeners, especially those who have shared and reviewed the show over the years. It really helps. And a special thank you to all our Patreon subscribers who really help keep the show on the road and allow us to keep making Bad Gaze. If you want to help support the show, head on over to badgazepod.com. And in return, there's a whole bunch of great rewards, including books and T-shirts. Speaking of books, uh, our book... Bad Gays, A Homosexual History, is now available for pre-order from Verso Books and will be published in June of 2022. The book profiles 14 insidious inverts all the way from the Emperor Hadrian to the Dutch far-right politician Pim Fortown and uh, basically presents a long extended argument for why homosexuality didn't work and what we might want to try to do instead. Um, Now, every episode, we're going to uh, talk about a different little sort of did-you-know fact from the book. And so today's is, did you know that the anthropologist Margaret Mead's work was inspired by her bohemian bisexuality and then went on to inspire a whole variety of movements for sexual liberation in the 20th century? For the full story, pre-order Bad Gays, A Homosexual History from Verso Books, available now at badgazepod.com book. Okay, so my first question is about uh, Mercury's artistic legacy, and I know you didn't say too much, maybe intentionally, about the music on the show, but um, if you could talk a little bit about what Mercury's kind of contribution to the history of, of rock music is. Um, I, I think it really depends who you, who you ask. He, he was, the Queen were, um, Queen were influential, and after Freddie died, you know, it, it, it's no, notable by 
just who who performed at the memorial concerts that were organised after his death. You can you know people like Axl Rose and and um, and Slash and things like that. You can see like part of this sort of camp uh, <clears throat> over the top performance, which really was based around live performance. So in terms of stadium rock, you can see see them in terms of like a general performance as being really quite influential. Um, but I wonder. I wonder how much influence he's really had on, on, for example, other queer artists. You know, like I think the charisma and the performance, yes, but I think musically, that sort of style with the sort of operatic sort of aspects and these camp aspects <clears throat> are really quite rare. And, and and when someone does come along who does maybe embody them a little bit, I'm thinking of someone like uh, Micah, maybe ten years ago. They quite often are maybe typecast or put into a box of being like Freddie Mercury likes. So maybe in some ways the music that Queen were performing was so, so specific to the time period and also so, so idiosyncratic that I wonder if it has been particularly influential from a musical perspective. And do you think there's something particularly uh, gay about that kind of cultural contribution? Yeah, I think the influences on him are are astonishingly gay. Like it, like this is one of the things I find strange about him is how he hasn't really been adopted particularly by the queer community after his death um, as a sort of gay icon, you know, like I, I think heterosexual people really regard him as a gay icon, but I'm, I think queer people, there's a slight distance from him, um, which for which there's probably many reasons. One of which is probably that he didn't come out uh, as, you know, in a way that would have changed that. Secondly, um, unfortunately and problematically, I think there might be a relationship to the fact that he that he died of AIDS when he died of AIDS. That meant that he wasn't sort of adopted, particularly maybe by a lot of other queer people. Although obviously, a lot of queer people do love Queen, but um, but I do find it strange because that he's that he's still seen he's still seen as a slightly camp or tacky figure when you take into account stuff like his adoption of like his interest in leather culture. <clears throat> all those clubs and stuff, you know, like in a way there's nothing cooler right now than that sort of New York seventies, early eighties sort of scene. Um, and yet, and yet he's all, he's really not seen as part of that. You know, like if you say, Oh, Maplethorpe or, or something, or, or Patty Smith, or, you know, these like figures or, or David Wanarovich and these sort of figures from New York at that time. Um, I guess, I guess that's because people don't see that his art matched that sort of aspect of his life. But for me, I find that aspect of his life uh, perhaps the most interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think the other major thing that I'd want to talk about is this question of his bisexuality, but I think we already spoke about that earlier in the episode. Um, so if people wanted to uh, learn more about Freddie Mercury, what are some of the sources that you used to research this episode? Yeah, one is um, Freddie Mercury, the definitive biography by Leslie Ann Jones, which I would approach for a touch of salt. It's got a lot of information, in, a touch of salt, a pinch of salt. It's got a lot of information that's useful in there, but it it's quite a sort of classic, dare I say, Daily Mail style um, rock biography. Uh, a better biography is, uh, which I used uh, extensively for for this, is Somebody to Love, The Life, Death and Legacy of Freddie Mercury by Matt Richards and Mark Langthorne. Which um which has a lot more detail is a bit more critical and it also um uh, also tells the story alongside his life of the um the history of the um, HIV virus. Thirdly, um, a book called Mercury and Mercury and Me by Jim Hutton, his partner. And if you want a sort of intimate personal 
look at who Freddie Mercury was as a person. <clears throat> it's a very, very informative book and very, very sweet. And, and both Jim and Freddie come across as like enormously likable, tender hearted people towards each other. Um, and that's basically covering the last sort of five years of his life. So I can really recommend that. And then lastly, a couple of news, newspaper articles, one on uh, Romescla, which is like a, um, which is called We Remember Queen's Infamous and History-Making Tour of Latin America by um, Marcos Hassan. And secondly, in The Guardian, The Sins of St. Freddy by John Harris. Well, great. Um, thanks so much for that. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. You can follow the show on Twitter at BadGazePod or go to BadGazePod.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy or my newsletter, hugh.substack.com. Until next week. Bye. Bye. Bad, 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 bad,